Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Today, um, we're kicking off a new series, uh, a new series for a new year. Uh, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Jonah for the next eight weeks. Uh, that's, a, that's the Hebrew scriptures. It's, it's a story that I'm going to guess almost everybody in this room is familiar with at some level. And yet, I believe God has some very fresh things that he wants to speak to us and to do in us through uh, us just placing ourselves inside the story of Jonah and in a sense holding it up as if it's a mirror and seeing what is reflected back to us about ourselves and, and what we're supposed to learn from it. So I'm pretty excited. It, it is an, it's a new series and yet in a lot of ways, it's actually a sequel to the series we just ended 2022 with. So if you were a part of that, that last teaching series in 2022, it's a series that we called um, Here Am I. You guys remember the series? It wasn't that long ago. I mean, it was a year ago, but it wasn't a year ago. In the Here Am I series, uh, we, we traced through the pages of Scripture the story of six people. It was kind of a character study on six individuals to whom uh, God came to them. They had an encounter with God, and their response was, here am I. And what we looked at in that series and what we saw in each one of those six people is that for them to say, here am I, it wasn't just like roll call. Like, uh, you know, somebody calls out the name and they say, here, you know, present and accounted for. That there was something deeper going on. In fact, here's the way we defined it. We said, here am I. Uh, The translation, again, in Hebrew, it's only one word. It's the word hineni. But it's more than just a phrase on one's lips. To respond with hineni begins as the posture of one's heart and is completed in the corresponding actions of one's life. And so what we saw in each one of these people that, that God had an encounter with God and they responded with, here am I, is the, the, the deeper response was something along the lines of, God, if you speak, I'm listening. Where you lead, I will follow. And what you ask, I will do. Here's the important part. All of this was rooted in trust in God and a willingness to obey because of that trust and because of being submitted to God. And, and so even when people didn't understand, here's why we were really the rubber meets the road when people didn't understand what God was doing, why he was asking them to do what he was, was saying, uh, how it was going to, to come about. When people didn't understand, they still said, okay, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand how that's even possible but I'll give you my yes, my hineni, right? So you think about, about Mary. Mary was one of the last, she was kind of like the climax of those six characters. And in Mary, we see this person who, she's, she's a young teenage girl. She's engaged. She's never been with a man. And yet God sends a messenger to her and says, says I'm going to place a child within you. I'm going to divinely place life within you that will be from me. And I want you to, to raise the son as Emmanuel, as God with us, right? And, and her response, now that doesn't make sense, okay? We know that, right? That, <laughs> that doesn't work. There's a suspension of the natural order to say, you've never been with a man and you're going to have a child. 
So she didn't understand that, but she said, here am I. Let it be with me according to your word. Okay, so that's at the heart of this series. Our new series, we're introduced to someone who had the opposite reaction. Jonah is essentially the negative inverse of all the people who said, here am I. He's like their corresponding opposite. If their response was, here am I, Jonah's response was, there I go. <laughs> right? So this is, our, this is our message this morning. It's, it, our series is called Sent. This morning specifically is, there I go, which is, I've been singing Bob Seger all week as I've been thinking about this. <laughs> there I go. Uh, anyway. The heart of this series, we're going to be asking the question, what is it that God wants to teach and shape in us? Again, I, I, I'm not thinking that this is an unfamiliar story, but I believe it's a very relevant story for the moment in which we live. I think it's a very relevant story for the American church, and, and I believe that there's some things that God wants to speak to us. We're going to ask, why was this account preserved and passed forward from generation to generation for almost 3,000 years now? We're going to be studying the life of a man who lived about... 2,800 years ago, and, and, and it's this weird, weird story. And, and, and what are we supposed to learn from it? Because the arc of his life is non-existent. We talk about Steve there being an arc to Steve's story. The arc of Jonah's life, according to this, the book of Jonah, what we have in the text of Jonah, it doesn't exist. He has no redemption moment. There's not a moment where he turns from being sort of a, a villain into being a good guy. He's pretty constant. And so the question is, well, if he's a negative example, what are we supposed to learn from that? We're also going to ask, why is Jonah so different than the other records we have of, of Jewish prophets throughout Israel's history? This, this falls into a category of Old Testament books that are called the prophets, and yet this is a very different prophetic book. Most of the prophets have a message that God says, he, he, points somebody, he appoints somebody and he says, I want you to speak what I tell you to my people. And so then what happens is that their, their book that we have in their name is typically just a record of what God spoke to people through him, right? We have the book of Isaiah, paragraph after paragraph, page after page. It's all of these, these words that God spoke through Isaiah to the people. We get to Jonah, and there's almost no content about what God spoke through him. It's all about the person. And so it tells us something that what we're supposed to learn isn't so much about what God wanted to say to someone else, it was what God was doing in Jonah. So today we're going to meet the main characters. We're going to set the context for the coming weeks. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Jonah chapter 1. We're only going to be in the first three verses today, and that's going to help us set the context. So here's the, uh, here's the, the opening two verses. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city. And cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Okay, we're going to pause right there, and we're just going to unpack those three words that are bolded on your screen. Jonah, Nineveh, and wickedness. So let's look at Jonah first. We're told that uh, Jonah is a, um, he's the son of Amittai. Son of Amittai. That's helpful to us. It's really helpful because it helps us to identify him with a prophet that we meet in one other place. So let me give you a little bit of background before we read about the other place in Scripture where we know about Jonah. Um, history of Israel. Israel was at one time a united kingdom of 12 tribes. Uh, 12 tribes under David and Solomon, they led a united kingdom. After Solomon's death, the kingdom divided. 
and became two separate kingdoms. And so there was 10, 10 tribes that were the northern, the northern kingdom and they were called Israel. And there was two tribes to the south and they were called Judah. And for the remainder of, of Israel's time, um, up until the birth of Christ, it was a divided kingdom. There was never a reuniting. And so in the book of Kings, first and second Kings, what we have is a record of the monarchy and it kind of travels through both groups. It travels through Northern Israel and Southern Judah. And it tells the story of each king and how they lived, how they led. Were they a good king? Were they a bad king? What happened during their reign? Usually it's pretty short summary statements and almost always it's comparing them to were they a king like David? David was kind of like the benchmark. So we come to Kings and this is what we find in 2 Kings 14. Jeroboam 2, the son of Jehoash, he began to rule over Israel. So this is the northern kingdom. In the 15th year of King Amaziah's reign in Judah. So King Amaziah was his contemporary in the south. He reigned in Samaria for 41 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Okay, this is not a good king of Israel. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to, to turn from the sins that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had led Israel to commit. So he, 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 led, he continued the sins of his father and forefathers and, and continued to lead the people to do those type of things. Jeroboam too recovered the territories of Israel between Lebo Hamath and the Dead Sea, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised through Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gethhefer. Okay, that is huge. And let me tell you why. Because what it helps us to identify is that Jonah is a real person who had a real prophetic ministry. We're not studying somebody who's a fictitious, made-up person. He had a, a, real, uh, a, a real prophetic ministry in Israel. He's a real person. And that background is going to give us a little bit of insight into what he was doing before we meet him in the pages of Jonah and what might be motivating him. It's going to give us a little bit of uh, ability to fill in the gaps of what the story doesn't tell. We're going to be treating the story, for our part, the next eight weeks, we're going to be treating this story as historical narrative. That means we're going to treat it as something that, that really happened. It's a selective account of something that really happened. Now, not all Bible commentators treat it that way. Some treat it more as a, uh, a fable, like a parable or an allegory. And they would say, well, this, this is included in Scripture because it's a, a parable that's meant to teach us something through creative storytelling. And the main reason that people would say that is because there are some wild things, some... Um, unheard of things, some unprecedented things that happen in the story. And people go, well, we don't see those type of things happen, so this must be an allegory. But here it is, we're finding out that this is about a person who really did exist, that he really had a prophetic ministry. And, and, and by the way, in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't treat this as an allegory. He compares himself to Jonah as if Jonah's a real person. So I'll just say this, one of the reasons that people have a tendency to do that is because of that that the miracles that happened or the, the supernatural things that happened that are really kind of out of our experience. And what that betrays, that unwillingness to think that this might have happened, it betrays a, a, a belief that, that maybe there's not a God who is uh, supernaturally involved in his creation. If you believe that there's a creator God who made everything, if you believe that that creator God is still involved in his creation, then it's not much of a leap to believe that that creator God can and will at times suspend the natural order in order to do something extraordinary that moves his purposes forward. 
There's a huge revelation that happens here and God was willing to suspend the natural order of how things normally happen. Not just with the whale. There's like a lot of supernatural creation things that happen in this story. And so I just wanna ask you to, to consider that. Hold that. Do you believe that there is a creator God who can and will be involved in his creation for his purposes and do extraordinary things? Now, here's the thing. The application of the book of Jonah, whether you believe that it's historical narrative that really happened, or whether you believe that it's, that it's a, an allegory meant to teach us something, it, the, the application's basically the same. You don't arrive at a different conclusion, no matter which you believe. I just think the, the force of it gets blunted if you dismiss it as a fairy tale. I think we're supposed to, to hold Jonah up like a mirror and see ourselves in it. And I think we're less likely to do that if we think it's a fairy tale. So we're going to be treating it as something that really happened. And um, there you go. Back to Jonah. So he's the son of Amittai. Uh, what else do we know about him? We know that he was, therefore we know he was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. Uh, historians uh, place Jeroboam II's reign at approximately 786 to 486. So that means the, the, the character Jonah, he lived approximately 2,800 years ago. Um, we know that he was probably well-received and liked within the northern kingdom of Israel by Jeroboam II because the thing that he said was a favorable message. Now that's, somewhat unique because oftentimes the, the messages that were brought by the prophets were corrective. They came to say, you're doing this wrong and unless you repent and change your ways, this is what's going to happen. That was quite often the message of the prophets. And, and there was things that could have been spoken out. We were told Jeroboam too was evil, but the message that God sent to Jeroboam too through Jonah was that he was to recapture territory that had been taken by their enemies. He was to expand their borders. And so this was, this was good news in Israel. And when Jeroboam moved forward with that, God caused it to happen. He blessed that and caused that word to, be, to become true. So Jonah was pretty well liked. I mean, that's a pretty good job for a prophet to speak favorable words to evil people and, and have your own people see that, that God's blessing. Like that's, that's a good job. Jeremiah would have loved that prophetic call rather than the one that he got. He's like, can I trade what I got for his. And we also know that his hometown is in Gath Hefer. We'll look at that in a moment on a map. So secondly, so that's Jonah. What do we know about this, about Nineveh? So um, Nineveh is not a city in Israel. We're, we're, God calls it that great city, but it's not a city of Israel. It's a city actually in Assyria. It's the current capital of the Assyrian empire, which is the controlling world power at this time. So here's the thing. To be sent to preach to Nineveh is to be sent to preach to the Assyrians, to a whole people group, right? And, and this is not a neutral people group where there's no like animosity or baggage. It's not like, like if God said, um, I want you to go to Canada. You'd be like, all right, you know? But this is more like being sent to preach to Berlin in 1940. If God said, I want you to go to Berlin in 1940 and preach, where would he be sending you to? Be sending you to preach to Nazi Germany. There's a different emotional response with that, right? That's the kind of emotional response that we're going to see in, in Jonah. So um, this is unprecedented, by the way, among the Hebrew prophets. Again, we have lots of prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. This one's different because there's a lot of prophets that are called to speak out. Generally, their message is always to Israel or to Judah. 
that's to, to God's people. Sometimes the prophets would address uh, other nations, but it typically wasn't to that nation. It was just in the hearing of Israel. And so sometimes a prophet might say, you know, basically go around the, the compass and say to the north, God would say this. To the south, God would say this. To the east, he would say this. But it always happened in Israel to Israel. This is different. He's not saying, Jonah, I want you to sit there in your easy chair in gath Hefer and speak out against the wickedness of the Assyrians. He's saying, I want you to go and preach to them. So lastly, last thing we learned, we saw in that was wickedness. So what is the wickedness of Nineveh? Now, I alluded to this a moment ago, but here's the thing. God never elaborates on that. The only thing that we hear from God about Nineveh is this one word right here. And, he, and what God says is their wickedness has come up before me. And the imagery is as if their wickedness has risen up to the heavens. And so God's seeing it very clearly. And so what is the wickedness of the Assyrians? Well, we were told um, later in the book, we won't see this today, but um, if we, well, actually, before I get there, that's really, I think that's really significant that well, you don't have a record of, it's not like a listing of grievances that God has against the Assyrians. Um, if we think about the principle of proportionate space, like what gets emphasized and what gets de-emphasized, that's what, though it helps us to know what we're supposed to learn from the book. This book is not about, the, about God's listing of grievances about, the, about everything evil that they've done. Instead, it's all about Jonah. So that's gonna give us a hint what we're supposed to take away from this. Um, what will happen? So we know the king of Assyrians, uh, of the Assyrians, he admits their evil ways and violence. When he's confronted with the fact that they're wicked and there's judgment coming, he just identifies. He says, yeah, um, we're... The book doesn't give us any more than that. History does, though. So I'm going to read to you what history tells us about the Assyrians and um, just give you a sense into why Jonah might have um, some qualms about going to Nineveh. History says, the Assyrians were known and feared for the ways they treated their conquered nations. They were, the, again, they're the reigning world power and they did that through domination and through by conquering countries and taking people uh, into captivity in other places, right? One of the more common scenes in the art that was recovered from ancient Assyria, so this is art that we've recovered modern day, is that of a king and queen banqueting in a garden decorated with severed heads. They were known to burn cities, skin prisoners alive, cut off hands, feet, noses, cut off ears, put out eyes, and pull out tongues. Those deported from their own lands were let off by fish hooks through their noses. Their kings were known to brag about the way they treated their prisoners of war, boasting about how they cut off their toes, their fingers. Asher Nasserpal, for example, he was, he, Asher Nasserpal was 100 years before Jonah's time, so this is kind of the legacy that, that Israel has as they think about, about uh, Assyria. Asher Nasserpal boasted, I stormed their mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of their mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. With, the, with their blood, I dyed the mountains red like wool. I carried off and I formed them into a pillar over and against their city, their young men and their maidens, whom I then burned with fire. This is, this is him boasting about what he did. Author Tim Keller, in his book about Jonah, he writes this. Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. 
The emperor Shalmaneser III is well known for depicting torture, dismembering, and decapitations of his enemies in grisly detail on large stone relief panels. This was his artwork. This was his modern art. Assyrian history is as gory and as blood-curdling as in history as we know. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so that they could shake victims' hands in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive, their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. And those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. He closes with this. The Assyrians have been called a terrorist state. Does that just kind of sum it up? The Assyrians have been called a terrorist state. Okay, it's to these Assyrians that God says, Jonah, I want you to go there. Their wickedness has risen up to the heavens. God says, I want you to go. Okay, verse three. Last verse for the morning. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Did you hear that twice? Away from the presence of the Lord. We're going to look at a map here, put this map up, get a sense of what Jonah does here. Um, This, okay, this right now, this thing that happened where God says, go to Jonah. If this was our previous series, that's the moment where he says, okay, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand why you would send me. I don't like this and I trust you. And so here am I. Again, that's not Jonah's response. That's why this is a different series. This is his there I go series. (laughs) So the middle red dot right down there on the Mediterranean Sea, that middle red dot is Joppa. Uh, um, his home in Gath-Hefer is not really on that map, but it would be just slightly uh, to the east of that, not very far away. So Joppa is the nearest seaport. So there's Joppa. Um, the place where he's sent to go, the green dot, is up in Nineveh. That's about 500 miles to the, what, to the northeast over land. And um, Jonah, instead of going 500 miles northeast over land, heads due west towards Tarshish. And you see the Tarshish has a question mark there. That's because historians aren't quite sure the precise location of Tarshish. Uh, it's either, uh, historians place it either in southern Spain or northern Africa. There's some confusion because we're not quite sure as we read ancient documents if Tarshish was a city or if it was kind of a, a general description for a region. But either way, it is basically the furthest known west that that you could go at that time. Somewhere between 1,200 miles to 2,000 miles, depending on which location you choose. But it's basically the end of the world, the other direction. (laughs) I was trying to think, what what would be the equivalent today? Because, you know, they had a known world. Um, We know what the world's like. I think it'd be kind of like if God did send one of us to Canada and we said, "Um, I don't think I want to go to Canada. I'm going to go to Texas and I'll buy a ticket on Elon Musk's next shuttle to space, right? That's sort of the force of what's happening here. Okay, the author tells us two times in that verse three that Jonah's intent is to flee from God's presence. He's trying to get away from God, the thing that God's asking him to do. He's willfully taking himself out of intimacy and out of relationship. 
Um, we, we're gonna find out next week if he really can escape God and Jonah knows that he can't. But he is, meanwhile, he's rebelling and refusing to go. So that's the setup. That's the setup for the book of Jonah. Um, and in order for us to have any sort of application today, as we have to ask the why question. Okay, the question is why. Why did Jonah refuse to preach to Nineveh? Why did he refuse to go to the Assyrians? And why did he not just, why did he not only refuse to go, but why did he just bolt the other direction as far as he could possibly go? Why is that? Knowing what we know about the Assyrians with what I just read to you about what history has told us about how the Assyrians treated their surrounding nations they conquered, what would you think is his reason for not going? Fear. That's exactly what I put in my notes. I think the most obvious reason is fear. Fear of what they might do to them, fear of how he would be treated. And here's the thing. I, I have to believe that is a factor in why he didn't go. I have to believe that that's one of the reasons, but he actually discloses, he self-discloses the reason that he didn't go to God. He, he tells God in chapter four. And you know what? He doesn't talk about fear of the Assyrians. He tells God that he didn't go because he was afraid of something, but it wasn't the violence of the Assyrians he was afraid of. He was afraid of the mercy of God. Let me just say that again. Jonah didn't go. He went the other direction, not because he was afraid of the violence of the Assyrians, because he was afraid of the mercy of God. He was afraid that the Assyrians might respond to his preaching. If they got a warning that their wickedness had risen up to the heavens and God was going to smite them if they didn't stop, that there's a chance that they might repent. And if they repent, God will relent. And he wants nothing to do with them repenting and God relenting. He just wants to see them get what they deserve. He's got every reason to despise them and to want to see them judged and punished. And what he's scared of is that God might... In fact, we'll get there. And it's, it's kind of this, like, it's almost satirical. He's like, see, this is why I didn't want to go because I know what you're like. I knew that if you repented, if they repented, you'd be gracious to them. Here's the thing. The reason that I read to you about the king's story, the king's account of Jonah's ministry back in Israel is because Jonah liked it when God was merciful to him and his people. When God showed undeserved, unearned love to his people that they clearly didn't deserve because Jeroboam too was evil and just continuing the evil that his forefathers and those before him had, had started. And yet when God was nice to them in an undeserved way, he liked that. But now when there's an opportunity for God to extend that same mercy to a different group, he resents it. He resents God showing undeserved, unearned love and mercy to others. And that's what the book of Jonah is all about. That's the story of Jonah. It's about God patiently, but persistently. God is incredibly persistent in this book. This is not an efficient story about God sending a missionary. If God wanted to do this in an efficient way, there's much more efficient ways that he could have reached the Assyrians. This is about God patiently and persistently trying to impart his heart of love and mercy for others who don't yet know him to those that do know him. To those who know and worship him, who have said, I will follow you, who've said, here am I. God wants to expand people's hearts to love others that they don't yet love. Again, if you look at that principle of proportionate space, what gets emphasized and not emphasized, this book is not 
It is not an indictment about the sin of others. Was Assyria wicked and violent and evil? Absolutely. They, they didn't even argue it. The king's like, yeah, we're bad. It's not an indictment about the evil or the violence or the sin of others. It's an indictment on the hard-heartedness of God's own people who love his mercy for themselves, but don't want to see it extended to others. And God's wanting to expand the heart of his people because his people are his image bearers within creation. We're called to carry his image faithfully and to reflect his image. And God is a God who's merciful and kind, full of steadfast love and forgiveness, gracious and compassionate. And when we are selective in who we extend that compassion to, we're distorting his image. Do you see that? Jonah was faithfully reflecting God's image to his own people. He was distorting his image by withholding a message of potential forgiveness to others. The book of Jonah was written and preserved and passed along to confront the disdain and the absence of love for others in the hearts of those who worship God. It's actually a story. It it illustrates with a powerful story what we're told directly in other places. So like, for example, Jesus says to his followers, he says, the, basically he says, the, the embodiment of God's instructions to his people are love God, love others, all others. Like the story that follows that encounter when he says, when basically people say, well, who are the others that I'm supposed to, to love? And he tells them a story which helps them to see it's not only the people that you want to extend love to, it's those that you might be reluctant to. Jonah confronts our propensity to be selective with God's love, to share God's love with some people, but not with others. And the book of Jonah is all about the others in multiple ways. So here's the question today. Let me bring this to some application. Who are the others in our world, in our nation, in our city, and in your life specifically? Who are the others in my life to whom I might not be as eager to share God's love with? Who I might not be as eager to to extend God's mercy and kindness to? It's very popular today. It's more so in my lifetime than any other time to draw lines in order to find a circle in which we belong and that, that says we belong here and everybody outside of this doesn't belong. They are the others and to have a certain amount of animosity, sometimes just indifference towards the others, sometimes full-on animosity and everything in between. It's very common today, but it's not God's heart for his people. So I want to ask you a few questions. And here's what I'm going to do. Just as we close, I just want to invite the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand about any specific people group that you might struggle with. I'm not gonna ask you to share this with anybody else, but I am gonna ask you, will you place yourself before God and open yourself to the Holy Spirit and let God bring any sort of, raise something to the surface that you may not be aware of. Maybe there's, a, there's someone that, there's a people group or an individual to whom if God sent you, you'd be kind of like, whoa, <laughs> I think I wanna go the other direction. Because what God wants to do in this series is to begin expanding our hearts to not only love the people we already love, but to love those that we don't yet love. That's what the series is about. 
That's why it's a very timely series for the church. It's the Holy Spirit. We invite you. We say with saints throughout the ages, come Holy Spirit, we invite you. Holy Spirit, one of the the promises of, of the work that you would do would be to soften hardened hearts. And part of living in this world, part of living in this fallen world by its very nature is to have hearts that are, that are hardened in, in some areas and towards some people or people groups. But God, your heart is for all of creation. Your heart is to establish a people who are a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Your heart is to be reflected for us to be faithful image bearers who carry your image faithfully without distortions. So Holy Spirit, would you just place your finger on any relationship, any people group that we might be reluctant to share your love with? That we might be reluctant to just simply love ourselves, to be kind to I did kind of an inventory to just help surface what some of these things might be that's it's not comprehensive in any way. But who are the others in your life? Who are the, the people who are other than you that you might have more disdain for than love? Maybe it's people who are other than you theologically. Could be somebody who is agnostic maybe antagonistic towards those who believe in a God. Maybe it's those who worship a, a different God. Maybe they, their religion is that, it's one of the isms. Buddhism, Hinduism. Maybe somebody who worships Islam. Maybe it's somebody, maybe it's, maybe it's more of a domestic, local, other religion. LDS, Jehovah Witness. Those surfaces, if, 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 if me just saying these things bubbles up some sort of animosity or some sort of, just, just pay attention to that. As we talk about theologically, people who are other than us, it's also people within the Christian umbrella. People who are more fundamental than I am or people who are more liberal than I am, right? More conservative, more liberal, more fundamental, more woke. And if we find ourselves spitting out these labels about other believers, it surfaces this place where we're not sharing God's heart. Maybe people are other than you politically. Does your life reflect God's love to people whose politics are different than yours? It's become really accepted and, and normative to slander and to name call people on the other side of the political aisle. And that's not just happening out there in the culture. It happens in the church. I think that's a distortion of God's image. 
Maybe people are other than you financially. You find yourself talking about those one percenters, all the evil they're doing, or maybe talking about those guys who just need to get a job. Sometimes our, our others are people who are different than us financially. Sometimes it's socially, sometimes it's ethically. What about people who think differently than, than you on matters of ethics, like gender, like sexuality, on important issues like abortion? Does your heart for them reflect God's heart for them? Educationally, people with different educational backgrounds or, or maybe they're making different educational choices for their family. It can be a place of slander. Racially, are there certain racial groups that you have bias against? Maybe ones that you avoid out of fear or prejudice. Maybe because of a fear that you think is merited. I like this one. Maybe people are other than you geographically. Do you have a bias from people with different license plates? And it can happen on both sides. You have a bias against people from California and Oregon. Also people from Texas and Florida. Or maybe it's experientially. Maybe you've suffered harm at the hands of somebody else. And so it would be hard for you to share God's love with them or that people group. Just let these things bubble up. This is not an accusation. It's an invitation to let God expand our hearts. That's what he's persistently and, and deliberately doing in Jonah is trying to expand Jonah's heart to include more people that God loves. I hope you got caught somewhere in that list. I know I did. The book of Jonah is supposed to catch us. We're supposed to, to hold it up like a mirror and see our reflection in him. And the purpose is to see our reflection and to see where we are distorting God's image by withholding his love and mercy and kindness to others. Jonah had all the reasons in the world to look down upon, to disdain, and to resent the Assyrians, to want them to experience God's justice and God's judgment for all the wrongs they had done. But here's the thing. God wanted Jonah as his image bearer to reflect him faithfully by extending mercy and undeserved kindness to the Assyrians. He didn't have to use Jonah, but he wanted to. And there's people out there that God wants to reach and he doesn't have to use us, but he wants to. This is the message of Jonah, that God wants those who call on his name to carry his image out into our world, to allow him to expand and extend his love to other people, to others. So if you can, would you stand with me? I'm going to lead us into just a closing prayer. And I am going to invite you to respond to this prayer just with a simple raising of your hand. But I'm going to warn you, this is a prayer that God takes seriously. Uh, it's not really a warning. It's, a, it's, it's actually an invitation. So in my journaling this week, before I was actually got a chance to begin studying Jonah, in my journal, my devotions had me in Matthew 25, which is the passage where Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. And basically Jesus says to his people, he said, I want you to treat the least of these as if they were me. 
I want you to treat the others as if they were me. When you do that, you're worshiping me. You're carrying my image faithfully. And so I wrote in my journal, I said, God, as we are in the stories of Jonah, would you expand my heart to love people? Would you give me opportunities? Would you open my eyes to see people that I haven't seen before? And I wrote that one day, and the very next day, he gave me an opportunity, literally delivered it to my doorstep. And you know what? As I walked that out, that's not a story I'm going to share today, but as I walked it out, it was actually really fun. I realized this is an adventure. God, you're answering my prayer to expand my heart to love more people. Thank you. What, how are you going to do this? And it became literally an adventure. If you'd like to ask God to do that, maybe this week, maybe in this eight-week series, to expand your heart to love a people or a person that previously maybe you would have looked past or maybe you would have even withheld God's love for because of some judgment you have about them. If, you would let, if you're open to, to, to that, we're going to give God our here am I. We're extending the here am I series another eight weeks in a sense because we don't want our lesson from Jonah to be there I go. We want it to be, here am I, send me. And so if you'll join me in that prayer this week, for us as a people and for you individually, I, just, I would ask you to raise your hand and I'm just gonna close in prayer and, and ask God to do the very thing he wants to do in us and through us. So Heavenly Father, here are we. Would you send us? Would you open our eyes to see people that we haven't recognized before, places where we've been blind or we've had uh, walls? And would you give us opportunities to extend your love to others and to see what you do with that? Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts where, where there's hardness in our heart toward any people group or, or any others would you now do that work of softening our hearts so that the way we carry your image in our world is faithful to who you are, is a faithful reflection of your love and mercy. Thank you for the fact that you've loved us extravagantly. Thank you for the fact that you've loved us uh, mercifully. Would you now help us to, to carry that love to others as well? Just repeat after me. Here am I. Send me. Oh man, you guys are in trouble. <laughs> All right. We have some words for prayer. This is some things that our prayer team sends. So, so, you know, we're called to be a people who goes and makes the invisible God visible out there. We also do minister God's love to one another. And so this morning, we're going to put some words on the screen. These are some things that our prayer team sensed uh, that, that God wanted to, uh, to minister to. And so if you see yourself on that list, or if you need prayer for any other reason, maybe you're not on that list, doesn't mean that, that you can't get prayer today. Our prayer and ministry team would love to pray with you and see what God might do in your circumstances. So uh, if that's you, would you just come up front and, um, and come up here? Uh, and apart from that, um, there, remember that we've got signups for walking or for uh, Wednesday Night Alive. We've got a meet and greet lunch over on this side for new or newish people. And apart from that, 
Go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.